Uh, greetings, friends. It is Thursday, March 9th. This is your Chapo Trap House. Uh, it's me and Matt today, and we are discussing the economy. I know it may sound boring, but uh, the economy is the thing that determines how much stuff there is, how much of that stuff you get to have, and ultimately, who gets all the best stuff. But I don't want to be uh, hopelessly out of my depth for this discussion. So here to, here to enlighten us on this phenomenon known as the economy is returning guest, Professor Richard Wolf. Professor, welcome back to the show. Well, I'm very, very glad to be here. I have good memories of the first time, so uh, let's go to it. All right. Well, there's, there's a lot of things that, that, you know, the economy covers, uh, you know, and we'll get to like things like uh, the debt ceiling, student loan forgiveness, economic warfare between NATO and Russia. But I want to begin with probably the, the, the facet of economic policy and reality that uh, is probably most present in the lives of everyday Americans. And that is inflation. Uh, its causes and consequences. We hear about it all the time, but uh, it's pretty simple. It's like when you start to notice that things are more expensive to buy, particularly at the supermarket as of late, um, I'm sure you've noticed this, that's inflation and it's considered a problem. But like almost everything else in the economy, uh, the way inflation is discussed, it's sort of described like it's gravity. It's just some sort of natural immutable phenomenon. So uh, Professor Wolf, uh, do prices just go up like the tides, or is something else being uh, alighted in this discussion of inflation? Well, as your questions show, you already understand that the simple answer to your question is, oh, yes, elided is the nicest word you could have come up with uh, <laughs> to handle this. We, and I say this as a person who's been doing economics all my adult life, teaching it, writing about it. The level of bullshit, and I don't know any other way to describe it that's honest, that's floating around there now, and I'm used to a lot of it, it's amazing. Uh, I really think, and maybe we can go into this later if you're interested, that there are things going on in this country that we ought to be paying attention to because what is being spoken about and the way it's being spoken is so disconnected from what's actually going on that you either have to believe people are terrified by what they see and so have to create an alternative universe or are so befuddled by what's happening to them that they can't think straight or speak straight. And inflation is a wonderful place to start. So let me very briefly explain. And, here, and if the things I say strike you as straightforward, good. But if you're familiar with the way it's discussed in the media, you'll know that I'm doing it quite differently. But here <laughs> we go. Inflation is a very simple business. You captured it. It's when prices go up. All prices don't go up the same. Some prices don't even go up at all. But if in general, the majority of things go up, that's an inflation. That's all. There's nothing more complicated than you have to be. And the opposite, by the way, when prices go down, is called a deflation. Those are just the words that economics has developed. Number two, who is in charge of prices? If you're going to ask the question, why do we have an inflation? A good way to start is to say, who does that? And here's something might surprise you. You and I don't. In other words, when we go into a supermarket, we don't I don't get bargain. to haggle. 
That's right. We don't bargain. We don't. Come on. 99% of the places we go, we pay what this little sticker on there tells us to pay. So you might be interested to know who puts the sticker on everything. And the answer is very important. It's the employer class. If you've ever been an employee, you will have noticed something. No one ever invites you into a room and asks you to participate in setting the prices of whatever it is you help to produce. Not going to happen. It's not your business. It's not your job. It's employers. So let's get right to the core. How many employers are there in the United States? Well, estimates vary. But if I say 3% of our population, I'm being really generous. The other 97% of us don't participate. So right off the bat, you know that an inflation is something inflicted on us by an identifiable group of people, the employers. Okay, next question. Just just logic. Why would the employers do that? I'm, I'm setting aside for those of you that take democracy seriously, that inflation means a tiny minority is sticking it to a vast majority, and the tiny minority is not accountable to that majority, wasn't elected, it had nothing to do with that. Well, it it seems like, you know, so if companies just like, if these decisions are made by a very small group of discrete individuals at uh, private firms, like, I mean, look, if they were just raising their prices, and then we weren't using the word inflation to discuss the phenomenon, then people would be mad at that. They'd be like, well, they're, they're being greedy. They, they just want to make more money. They want, they, want to, they want more profit on each item sold. And if they can charge You're more for it, it, they're going to do it, right? But when, but when it's talked about, oh, we're in an inflationary crisis right now, it's sort of like, oh, well, they, they have to raise prices because it's assumed that the cost of producing these goods has uh, also risen so that they have to offset that in some way. Right. The people who raise the prices in a capitalist economic system, because that's how it works, it isn't a democratically elected city council or a democratically elected parliament. No, no, we allow private individuals who stand to gain personal wealth by doing it to make the decision. And you can see the minute you understand it, the problem, they don't want to be hampered in doing this. They, in fact, do it to raise profits. Let me remind you, having taught in business schools in my life, what we teach young people getting an MBA who want to go on and be hotshots in in the business world is that every decision they make should be geared to improving the bottom line, the profit, not just the pricing, but all decisions are to be governed by that objective. You will get rewarded in your life if profits go up, and you will not be rewarded if the profits go down. Profit is the measure we use. The honest businessman, woman, person will tell you, yes, I make all my decisions by evaluating their likely impact on profit. The problem with the inflation is if you're going to take advantage, which every employer does, of the position uh, that capitalism gives the employer, you're going to be, and here comes the answer to your question, you're going to be stuck with the responsibility for what you just did. You raised the prices. So how are you going to handle that? You're going to make the public angry at you. 
you're going to make your customers pissed off at you. This is not good. Solution. Come up with bullshit. Better yet, (laughs) hire someone like me who specializes in this bullshit and who has a pedigree as a professor of economics to come out there and really do a number. And here we go. Here's the number. Number one, not in order of importance, but in order of bullshit. Number one, supply chain disruptions. Up on the screen, we see the Suez Canal and that big freighter you may remember last year. It was stuck sideways and blocking the canal. What a wonderful picture. Look, uh, a ship screwed up in the canal and the Egyptians don't know how to run a canal, whatever. And But it's not my fault. I'm I'm just a (laughs) lawyer. I got stuck with this. Okay, here's the answer. If you're honest, if you're busy pumping the bullshit to get yourself exonerated, no. But we're not here for that. And I presumably that's why we talk together, right? Okay, here we go. Every major corporation in America has something called a purchasing manager, usually part of a purchasing department. The job of the purchasing office in GM, GE, or any other sizable corporation, is to deal with, get ready, supply chain disruptions. That's why they're there. That's why they have an office with computers and secretaries and assistants and deputies. They're supposed to have fallback where you can get your inputs if the regular source is interrupted by weather, by a fire, by a war, by who knows what. You have to have plan B and plan C. That's your job. If you come to the CEO and say, "Um, um, there are supply chain disruptions, the CEO will smile, roll back in his chair, and tell you you're fired. Because that's your job. That's why we hired you, so that you can handle what is normal in every business, which is supply chain disruptions. They happen all the time. And even if they happened a bit more, you're supposed to worry about that, have a plan for that. And I can introduce you, if you'd like, to loads of companies who, in fact, got through the supply chain disruptions perfectly fine because they had a good purchasing manager and they thanked him or her kindly uh, for being. So that's the first Bullshit. Here comes the next bullshit. It's all the fault of Mr. Powell and the Federal Reserve. Okay, most Americans don't know what the Federal Reserve is. It's our central bank. We don't call it the Bank of America because our private company has the name. (laughs) In other countries, it's called, in other (laughs) countries, it's called. The Bank of England, the Bank of Germany, the Bank of France, the Bank of Italy. I have visited those places. I've given papers at conferences. Only in this country do we have this odd, weird name, which takes an extra five minutes to explain to people why you would do this is a mystery. But in any case, like every central bank, the job of the Federal Reserve, here we go, the job of the Federal Reserve is two things, prevent a price instability. So that is either an inflation or a deal. Stable prices, that's your first job. And your second job is to use your ability to manipulate the monetary system to minimize economic downturns and to manage 
a balanced kind of economic growth. That's your job. So the first thing to notice about an inflation is that the Federal Reserve messed up. It didn't do its job. It's not. We're not supposed to have these things. Back a century ago, we created the Federal Reserve to do that, which is the same function central banks have across the world. It's weird. They don't create the inflation. They, by the way, manipulate the amount of money. So here comes the bullshit section B with the Federal Reserve. You wave your finger and you say, they created an enormous amount of money over the last 20 years. Absolutely true. But you leave it at that. But you can't do that. You have to ask the question, unless you are slow, why did they do that? And the answer is our capitalist system, which now now you got a clue why we don't go there. Our capitalist system crashes every four to seven years. It's been doing it for centuries. We've had three crashes in the first 20 years of this this century. The dot-com crash in the spring of 2000, the subprime mortgage crash in 2008 or 2009, and the so-called COVID-19 crisis in 2020. We are very interested in giving each crisis every four to seven years a different name in the hopes that you won't understand that it's endemic to capitalism. You'll link it always to something else, like the dot-com, as if that were the first time that stock prices went crazy. Or if it was the subprime mortgage, as if it were the first time our country has had problem with mortgages. Or if it were the first time we had a pandemic. That is more bullshit designed, in this case, to avoid the, the complexity of an of a unstable system. But the Federal Reserve came in and pumped the money to offset the catastrophe of a crash. When the economy crashes, let's remember, the big one back in the 1930s lasted 11 years. It hit unemployment rates of 25%, which meant every American family was affected by it. We're terrified of that. And so when the downturns of 20, 2008 and 2020 happened, the Federal Reserve pumped in money because that's what they've been taught to do. It's not some failing, some weird, odd mistake that they made. It is what they normally do. So if you really want to look at the causes of inflation, you have to look at the way this system works and understand that what businesses do, what employers do always, is look around the environment and decide what is the best way at this moment that I can juice up my profits. That's their job. And sometimes it's by automation, replace workers with machines. Sometimes it's by moving jobs overseas where you can pay workers a great deal less than you have to pay here. Sometimes it's by bringing desperate poor immigrants in who might be willing to work for less. And you know what it is sometimes? Jacking up your prices. And if after 20 years of the government pumping in more money, you know a lot of it is out there, well, that's another reason to think about it. Many businesses didn't make money during the pandemic. And when that pandemic seemed to be over, they were in a big rush to get the profits for the last two or three years that they hadn't been able to collect. And the quickest 
fastest way they could figure out how to do that, starting in 2021, was to raise their prices. And that's what they did. And the only thing funnier than that is the use by many of the following explanation for why they raise prices. I'm raising my price because others are doing it. That's what they say. <laughs> Think yeah. about that. That's, that is the most ridiculous effort at an economic expla- explanation one could descend to. Where, where are these people's mothers? You know, I mean, yes. like I was told if your friends jump off the Brooklyn Bridge, are you going to follow them? Yes. But I mean, like, uh, Richard, like I mean, you talk about um, you, you brought up the pandemic and like to, an, you know, an economic rube like me. Um, there's a certain explanatory, uh, explanatory power to this as, as it relates to like, oh, the, the, the supply chain. I'm like, oh, well, you know, like the whole planet's convulsed with this virus. It sort of makes sense why things would get more uh, expensive for the last couple of years or whatever. But like, how are we to discern or, or should we even bother discerning uh, one way or the other how much uh, the companies are using this, like, like any disaster, be it a pandemic or a war or whatever, to account for the price increases that they were going to do anyway, perhaps with some uh, public uproarium. Is it essentially all just like uh, the, the prices that they want to set and we're going to look, they were just looking for a crisis to uh, provide them with the opportunity to raise the prices that they, to the levels that they want to, uh, to begin with. No, that's, that would be too simple. It's always many factors. Let's be fair to these employers. Not that I really want to, but for the sake of politeness and honesty, let's be fair to them. It's always complicated what the best route forward is to make a profit. It really is. They hire a lot of people like me and others, give them a lot of advice. Uh, Then they decide what's our best strategy now. And, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it had to do with globalization. Go abroad, find the right, you know, the very self um, same supply chain disruptions could only be invented by a capitalist class that had spent the previous 20 years extending their supply chains to global lengths, which they hadn't had before. If they had had all their sources here inside the United States, they wouldn't have cared that ships got stuck in the Suez Canal. It's because it was the most profitable thing to do to move abroad that they then can use the excuse of a supply chain disruption as a plausible argument. Look, if you have a disaster, whatever it is, economic, political, public health, the logical thing for a society to do is to organize itself, to mobilize its resources, and come up with the best solution for the society. We don't do that. That's part of the problem of our system. It's everybody make a buck out of it if you can. And of course, they do because that's their job. The more we allow the key decisions, take the pandemic. Do we have enough ventilators? Do we have enough masks? Do we not fill it in? Do we have a, a distribution of these things properly in the country? The answer to all those questions is we didn't have them. Why? Can't we produce them? Of course we can. Don't we have the brains to put it together? Of course we do. But we leave all those things in private profit hands. 
And those people are busy maximizing profit. They're not going to have warehouses spread around the country with masks, ventilators, and everything. We know what we need for the next pandemic. We're going to have more pandemics. We're gonna, we still don't have what a national effort. And you can go to many other countries that do. So there's no mystery here. We could have help from a lot of other places, many of them places we are embarrassed to ask for help for, but we could. We don't do that. We leave it in the hands of people whose number one priority is profit. And one of the results is an inflation. That, that's the way this system works. Let me switch it slightly. and You'll see it maybe in, in another way. What we're looking at right now is the Federal Reserve, we all know that, right, raising interest rates. We have been inundated for six to eight months of the federal or year. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates to combat the inflation. The bullshit now gets thicker. Watch this. You know, if you hadn't seen it before, you'll get it now. I'm watching this. I'm a professor of economics. I teach the very people that are doing this. I'm angry at them because they obviously didn't deserve the B minus I gave them. But let's be clear here. The Federal Reserve behaves as follows. There's an inflation. It's not a good thing. And we're going to raise interest rates. Now, let's take a look at that. Number one, the inflation hurts most the people with the least money, right? If prices go up, if you're rich, it's an irritation. If you're not, it's a real problem. For a society that just went through one of the worst public health disasters we know of and the second worst economic crash in 2020 that we've had as a system, you really don't want to follow up by whacking the working class with an inflation, right? So you would have thought, gee, whoa, and now you're going to hit them again by jacking up the interest rate? which makes a house unaffordable, which means your monthly payment for your car has to go up, which means your credit card uh, balance is going to be whacking you again. I mean, what? What are you doing? The answer seems to be the way they play it, because th these, are, these are bullshit artists. Let's be fair. They, they know how to do this. They act as though it's the only, it's the necessary, it's the absolutely appropriate thing to do. But it isn't, and it never was. What What are you talking about? Let me, I'm going to give you now very briefly, I promise, an example from American history, this country, nobody else, other ways of dealing with an inflation that were used in America, that worked in America, and that magically have been erased as if we had social amnesia in this country. August of 1971, the President of the United States, Richard Nixon, there's a roaring inflation. Everybody wants to stop it. On that day, 15th of August, 1971, Richard Nixon goes on radio and television speaking to the American people as our president. And he says the following, we have a terrible inflation. We have to do something. It's hurting people, blah, 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 all of that. And here's what we're going to do. As of tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, any business in America that raises the price of anything, we will come for you, we will arrest you, and you're going to jail. Ooh. Then he followed up two minutes later. 
any union, any labor organization that pushes for higher wages, exact same treatment. The inflation stopped on a dime. Done. Finished. What? It was originally a, 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 a plan for, th- for 90 days. It was extended because it was so successful. Now, I'm not arguing for it, although I would be happy to do that if you're interested. But I'm telling you, we are in a very strange country where nobody, except if they've interviewed me, nobody talks about this. Everybody acts as though raising interest rates is a, all we discuss is how much we raise them, how fast we. This is weird. This is really odd. Let me give you the second example. It's early 1940s. President Franklin Roosevelt. See, I'm being fair. We had re- Republicans. Both Nixon. sides. Now we yeah. have them. Yeah. You know, Tweedledum, Tweedledee. Uh, Mr. Roosevelt is approached by economists, including my teachers, the ones I, that I learned from at the university, who told me these stories. That's why I know them. The economists come to Mr. Roosevelt, the president, and they say to him, you're about to go into war. World War II is what we were about to enter. And you've been mobilizing the country to produce military equipment to fight the war. Guns, planes, bullets, all of that. And that means an enormous amount of resources in this country that used to produce the goods and services everybody wants to find in the neighborhood store, they're not going to be producing those anymore because that's going into war production instead. And that, Mr. President, leads us as economists to warn you. When you do that, you're going to suddenly collapse the supply of lots of goods in our economy. Meanwhile, the same Americans are going to be looking to buy as we're looking last week, last month, last year, but they're not going to find it. And if you allow the market, the capitalist market to work, the rich people are going to bid up the price of this scarce stuff. And we're going to have a country bitterly divided between those who can't afford a higher price and the rich who can. To fight a war, you want your people unified not at each other's throats because they can't buy stuff. And you know what Roosevelt did? He said, you know, you're absolutely right. And here's what we're going to, and you'll love this if you have a little bit of leftism deep in your soul. What the president of the United States did with the approval of the Congress was to say, okay, we clearly cannot allow the market to work because it'll mess us up. It'll divide us into those who bid up the price of scarce goods and bitterly enrage everybody else. Rich people will get scarce milk to feed their pet cat, and people will be unable to get this milk because they can't afford it for their babies, right? You can't do that. Can't do that. So we won't have a market. The government printed and distributed ration books. In each ration book, you tore out a little coupon that got you a quart of milk, a pound of meat, a pound of sugar, a gallon of gasoline. We had what's called rationing. And you know how the government distributed the ration cards? To each according to their need. Oh, my goodness. We distributed products of our factories and offices 
according to people's needs, because we got rid of the capitalist market. Always keep that in mind. The next time on the 4th of July, a CEO you really like gets up there and babbles about the market. Rationing, wage price freeze, those are alternatives. An honest government would be presenting those to the American people. Let us discuss and debate and decide which one of them, which combination of them would be the best. We don't do that. We we can't anymore. We're a society in such bad shape that all of this junk has to be dictated and then encapsulated in a level of bullshit that will make even our media hesitate to try to penetrate in there. Yeah, during World War II, it was uh, set up an inherently unstable system in which only a small amount of the American population, i.e. Our, our servicemen fighting in Europe, had access to things like Hershey bars, Lucky Strikes, and women's nylons, you know, and that would be giving them a wildly outsized power, you know, in, in a market where everyone wants cigarettes and chocolate and nylons. But uh, Professor Wolf, um, we talk, in talking about some of the, like the, the causes or the bullshit explanations for inflation, I mean, really what we're talking about here is like everything else in the economy, it is a way in which like sort of class domination is managed. But I'd like to talk about something like in the supposed solutions for inflation, how we see that same class domination appear. And I'm just wondering, like when you're talking about the Fed raising interest rates or when you ever you hear people in the business press talk about a, how bad it is that we have a tight labor market. Does does it as an economist, because usually unemployment is thought to be like the the the, the cardinal uh, sin or like the, the 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 bad thing that has to be avoided in an economy. Does it surprise you as an economist to see the business press more and, and then even the Federal Reserve more or less talking openly about how it's a problem that too many people have jobs right now and that we need to actually discipline the labor market by creating unemployment? Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. And by the way, when they talk like that, they violate the economics people like me taught them. They're so desperate to try to figure out some way to rationalize a system that can't be rationalized anymore. We're done in the United States. Why this is happening? But, you know, the normal way you teach it is as follows. If there's a demand for something that's greater than the supply of something, then you bid up the price because that'll dissuade the people who want it from buying as much of it. Meanwhile, it will encourage the people who produce it to produce more of it. So it's a problem that solves itself by having the price go up. The trouble with it, if you're a capitalist, you can't allow that in the in the labor market. If the shortage of labor is a problem, the solution is raise the damn wages, you idiot. That's what we taught you. That's the solution. But they don't want that solution. So they come up with new language. The labor market is tight. We never use that language when what's tight is the availability of eggs. We don't do We say, oh, there's a market imbalance. Yeah. And the solution is to let the market do its thing. These are the same people who think that the market is the greatest thing since sliced bread, except when it steps on their toe. uh, like an example of that would be, I remember like at, during the height of the pandemic, we saw a lot of uh, businesses, particularly restaurants, be like posting notice that like, hey, we're understaffed, like because, quote, nobody wants to work anymore. Nobody oh, right. wants to work anymore. Nobody and wants to work like, anymore. Well, 
Yeah. Right. Well, the market has decided that like not for the not for what you're offering, right? So like the market exactly. has decided for you, but like but then it becomes about it's not about oh, I just don't want to pay people what their what their labor is worth in this current market. It's about their their individual moral failing as like, you know, slothful yeah. or indolent individuals. Right. You can't have it that I'm not going to Let's imagine for a moment an honest capitalist says, okay, um, here's it, the deal. Uh, I need workers, but if I pay them the price that I would have to pay to get them to come, then there's not enough profit for me. So screw that. I'm going to contribute to unemployment because I don't want to pay that amount of money because it comes up. Okay, I got it. But then the answer is, all right, then we have an economic system with millions of people who need and want a job, with all the tools and equipment we have uh, available for them to work with, and we have social needs up the wazoo that need to be met, but in our sorry system, we can't put these elements together the way any rational uh, person could and would. Nobody wants to admit any of that, so we come up with this language. Notice, by the way, one of the biggest price increases... (laughs) you may have noticed, are eggs. Well, what are we supposed to say? The chickens are tight? What is this? <laughs> you know, what, what lunacy is this? You've lost your mind. You, you're so desperate. I want to keep hammering at this because it, you're, you and the program you run and the way you run it, the humor, the irony, the sarcasm, that's how this has to be punctured, this balloon. You're the right guys for it, I hope. You know, I hope you see that as your, I don't know, moral or social responsibility. Ridicule is probably the best tool to get this crazy behavior that's now coming uh, on there. We, I mean, this is a country, it's by the way, left that in, in Europe. This is a country that just spent Obama, Trump, and Biden deporting the millions of desperately poor immigrants. And now we have a labor shortage. Hello, you just threw them out. If you didn't do that, you wouldn't have the shortage. Not only wouldn't you have the shortage, but it would be at the bottom of the economic ladder that those people would be likely getting the jobs because they're the ones who had them before anyway. And But you're lurching. You're, you're cra- you're, we have to know the border we have to secure. Why? This country built on not... Who needs a secure? What is this? It, it is a, and when you see that kind of behavior with otherwise perfectly you know normal decent people, you're witnessing something happening that makes normally reasonable people start acting crazy. That's why our politics are so crazy. Our divisions are crazy. We're getting scared of ourselves. We're killing each other every day in the in the street. I mean, look at it. I think you guys are. I don't mean to tell you what your business is. You're obviously very good at it. You've been very good at it. I'm just encouraging you that in a way you sit at a point and you mastered a kind of language, puts you in a good position to do something here and the country badly needs it. Well, I'm, I'm doing my best, Professor Wolf. I think I'm yes, at like a B, a B minus so far, but we can see if we can up that by the end of the semester. All right. Before we get into like uh, like a more like a, gl- a global view of the economy and some of the things there, I just want to I want to just I want to talk about one more thing on the uh, d- domestic front. And there's a lot of bullshit around this. So I, I would just like your talk, uh, your take on the idea of student debt 
and student loan forgiveness or uh, free uh, higher education at the state level. And the, as you described this, like it, it's again, it's another pretty simple problem we have here. We don't pay people enough to afford to, to afford the education that our economy demands of individuals of how to fit in and have like a you know a decent successful life. But like, okay, there's and people have to incur more and more with like you know an astonishing amount of debt to get like a bachelor's degree. Right. Now, solutions for that, like you know, like things like student loan, like a like a debt jubilee for student loans, like that's been discussed, and like it keeps getting more and more and more watered down. Like there's some, there's some meager uh, loan forgiveness being proposed, but I, I want to talk about more like, the counter arguments to this, or the people who argue against it. Uh, the primary thing I've seen, uh, like arguing against uh, student loan forgiveness, is that it represents an upward transfer of wealth, and that it is primarily the wealthy who reap the benefits of this loan forgiveness. Which, on its face, kind of just like you know, as, as a rich kid myself, like I didn't take out loans to go to college because my parents could afford it. So, like, I mean, like, so who who are all these wealthy people going into debt to go to college? I mean, and then, and then what do you mean when you say wealthy? Like, well, how do, what do you make of the argument that student loan forgiveness or even free public higher education? is some sort of upward uh, wealth redistribution. The technical term I would use for that is grotesque bullshit. <laughs> uh, and, well, I mean, I, there are other arguments I wouldn't use. It. Like, I, it's not that I throw it at everything, but, but you're giving me really the, 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 the cuckoo examples. There are people who don't want the forgiveness. I get that. They don't want it. They're against it. Their problem is, however, how to rationalize that. And that's not easy because the logic is all in favor of doing. My parents were refugees. My father was French. My mother was German. I speak French and German. I have since I've been a kid. So I keep the track. I was born in Ohio. I'm as American as you want, but I keep contact with Europe. I'm interested. You know, and elements of my family are there. Education in Europe, excepting England, basically, is free. And I want you to understand. I'm going to give you the example of Germany. Germany is the most successful economy in Europe. Germany is the biggest economy in Europe. Germany is the powerhouse of the entire EU, economically speaking. In Germany, edu higher education is free. Zero. Nothing. No fees, no tuition, nothing. Not only for every German, but for anyone who enrolls. There are 30,000 Americans enrolled in German colleges to save the money, to not go into debt. So clearly a powerhouse capitalist economy, more or less like ours and arguably quite like ours, does it for free. So you got a problem, even with American media not telling the people about this. I mean, it's not a secret. You can find it out. People know. So you got a problem here. You don't want to give to the American people a free higher education system when other countries do. Second problem, if you forgive debts, you are taking a very dangerous step. Why? Because this country is mired in levels of debt we have never imagined, let alone been in, before. Corporate debt, off the chart. Government debt, off the chart. Household debt, or mortgage, car, um, credit card, and student debt, all off the chart. A 
And guess what? Everybody needs debt forgiveness. The Jubilee idea is as old as the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's in the Bible or some other holy books because people have been doing this for a long time. And there's a simple reason why. If you don't do it, you're creating a divide between the debtor and the creditor, which threatens the cohesion of your society. You don't do it out of largesse. You do it because we better do it or else we're going to tear ourselves away. None of that works here. You can't say it. You can't admit it. So what do you have to come up with? Here we go again. Bullshit. So you tell, are there a few people who come from comfortable families who will have some debt and it will be forgiven? Absolutely. Who cares? Why is this, you know, this is complete bullshit. And, And the way I deal with it, when I have to confront people and I travel, I mean, before the pandemic, I travel a lot more and gave talks. In December of 2017, under the Trump administration, we passed one of the largest um, tax cuts in American history. Fantastic for corporations and for the wealthy. Did we say, well, we're going to give a tax cut, but you corporations, you got to show us that you really need it. Otherwise, this is going to contribute to a redistribution of wealth from the little company in Sheboygan to the big. We didn't do any of that. Republicans and Democrats threw the money at the corporations. All of this, do each of you deserve, are there some among you? Stop. This is bullshit. And it's only there to because you can't give the reasons well, the what people- you can't get, what you can't give, you know, when I think about the way debt works in this country and particularly like health insurance and medical debt, but certainly right. student loan debt as well, is that like the thing that can't be said is that we maintain like these regimes of like, you know, uh, sort of entrapping some increasingly more and more people in all kinds of debt because yep. it is a means of social control and discipline. And like, uh, you know, private health insurance, I think is a great example of that. Like the fact that like you, you put a situation where like you, you compel everyone to spend upwards of like five grand a month on health insurance or, or, or get it through an employ, employer back if you're lucky. Well, then that like that greatly limits your ability to, let's say, leave a job or start a business on your own because of things like, you know, I, I just think like keeping everyone in debt is a way to keep everyone in line. And I think that is useful if you want to talk about social cohesion as it's understood by the people who run the economy. I think that's what they mean by it, making sure everyone knows their place and everyone has some, quote, skin in the game. I, I agree with you. What I'm about to say is not disagreeing. It's just an adding, the, you know, and allow for my economist brain. Look, if you have a system with markets and prices and wages, namely capitalism, if you want to provide people with adequate housing, with adequate medical insurance, with adequate education, Here's what you got to do. You either have to bring the prices down so that people's incomes will enable them to afford it, or you've got to lift up their incomes, leave the prices as they are so they can afford it. This is not rocket science. We have a system that won't do that. And who is in charge? The employers. They set the prices where we can't afford them, and they set the wages where we can't afford it. 
and then making more profit because they have the wages too low and the prices too high. Then they do the final coup de grace, the French would say. They make the extra profit and they turn around to a befuddled American working class and they say, we're going to help you out. We're going to give you a loan of the money we profited because we paid you so little and we charged you so much. The only thing worse than that hustle is that the person you're hustling thinks they're getting something. You're not. You're being ripped off. If you want, look, after World War II, the United States as a country built a vast amount of public housing. The plan was to put Americans back to work so that after World War II, we wouldn't slip back into the Great Depression that had preceded the war. And the way to do that was to give everybody a job, to give returning soldiers a GI Bill. They could go to school with money if they didn't take a job. And we were going to create the jobs by a massive program of federal highways and a massive program of federal housing. The housing died. The highways were built. Why? Because that was a subsidy to GM, Ford, and Chrysler. Nobody's going to buy a car if there isn't a road to run it on. And if GM and Ford and Chrysler had had to pay for the road, there would have been no profit. End of story. So we subsidized the highways and they were built. The housing was a direct competition to the private housing business. They killed it. And so we have a country with more highways than you could imagine, by the way, killing us, because instead of having public transportation, which is cheaper, better for the environment, kills many fewer people, we're not doing that. We're going from one irrational private automobile system based on gasoline to another equally irrelevant one based on electricity. We're celebrating the technological breakthrough. That's not what we needed. We need public transportation, and we ain't getting that. This is more of all of that. You are absolutely right. It it is a mechanism of social control. But even before you get to that valid argument, what... How is it that we don't blame a capitalism that either doesn't provide us with housing at a price we can afford or give us the wages to pay the prices they want to charge? Other countries are not working like this. This is not the way it works in most parts of Europe, Western Europe. And I'm not celebrating. They have lots of problems over there, too. It's not that. But there's no excuse here for not dealing with the options that are available, with not exploring the alternatives, not even allowing the people to discuss it. That's why I get the way I do about the Federal Reserve. This We all have to jack up interest rate. What are you talking about? I know that. Let me, let me be personal. I, I got my PhD in economics at Yale University. A classmate of mine was a young woman named Janet Yellen. Nice. We had the same teachers. We sat in the same room. We read the same assigned articles. Her education, my education, literally the same. I know what she knows. She was a smart student, no problem. She's a nice woman and all that. I know she knows. What I've told you today, she knows all that. I'm sure she knows more than I do about those things. And yet there she is acting out a scenario 
that, uh, wow, I don't know quite what to make of the disconnect between what is being said and what anybody who knows this stuff is aware of. There's something, there's something seriously wrong here. And you may have a better grasp on it than I do. For me, it's just an ongoing mystery. Um, to, to, to depart now from uh, the domestic sphere to like a, 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 more, a more global context, uh, like in, in America, like as, as an economic superpower, but then like the, the possibility of uh, as adversarial nations, specifically China. And uh, Matt, I, I know you had, some, you, you had some questions for the professor about uh, economic competition between the United States and China. Yeah, so we are seeing now, we saw first with Trump this, this trade war that was sort of fitfully pursued during his term. And yes. now Biden is continuing in a process yes. of trying to decouple the American economy from, China, from China's. Uh, and I just was wondering where you saw that heading. I mean, if we do, we are mutually you know, reliant on China and they are on us economically. I mean, what is what would, could replace that relationship realistically? Nothing. <laughs> that's why I thought. Nothing could. No, but that's very, very important. And you put your finger on it. They need us. You're right. We need them. You're right. Let me add a little bit and you'll see where that takes us. Trade between the two countries continues to increase. It did across everything Trump did, and it did across everything Biden has done, right to this minute. The biggest announcement in the financial press yesterday was Costco's commitment to its third megastore in China. Walmart has 39 megastores in China. Sam's Club is expected. These are people who are not going to make risky investments. They don't think it's risky. you got to stop and wonder, what does that mean? The answer is, and I'm sorry, I see it's becoming a theme of today's conversation, but much of the answer has to do with bullshit. <laughs> it is important. Look, Mr. Trump, where it's easier, right, for folks like you and me, easier to say this of him. But I'm going to say in a minute for Biden, too. This was all theater. We can trade war and you can win trade. Remember, you can yeah, win, you a, win trade a trade war. war. Yeah, right. Remember, you can win a trade. Tariffs. The poor president kept saying then the Chinese have to pay the tariffs, which was embarrassing, because if you know what a tariff is, it's only paid by the one who imports it. China is not import. You put a tariff. It's the American importer who pays the tariff not the exporter in China. The president, we're sticking them with a tariff. No, you're not. You're imposing on America an immense tax increase, you big champion of not raising taxes. He did. A tariff is a tax. Just a special name. If When you put a tax on an imported item, it's called a tariff. Other than that, the words are, are synonyms. Okay, so we've had the tariff wars, the trade wars, and now, as you rightly say, the continuation under Biden. Throughout it all, the trade and the investment in China by us and in us by China keeps right on going. There's lots of bullshit. There's lots of, oh, uh, so what do we do? We arrested, if I remember. Yeah, the daughter 
of the CEO of the Huawei Corporation. We got uh, Justin Trudeau in Canada to put her under house arrest. Talk about picayune, petty, farting around. What is this? It's embarrassing. You know, it's just the whole world of what? But now let, let me do some real economics with you, okay? And you'll understand where the bullshit, how deep it runs. I'm going to give you the numbers for the following. The GDP, the gross domestic product, that's a statistic economists use. It simply measures the total output of goods and services in a country in one calendar year. And by comparing the GDP of country A and country B, you have a sense of their relative footprint, their relative size in the world. Okay. For the most recent year, the GDP of Russia, big for having a fight with Russia, a, a sanctions war, an economic, Russia's GDP, one and a half trillion dollars. The United States in the most recent year, 21 trillion dollars. So first of all, please understand, this is a momentous war between an elephant and a flea. Russia is not a competitor of the United States economically, and it never was. Not during the Cold War, not before World War II, not after it. Never, ever, never even close. Russia might have had a, a military power that was important, yes, that you can say, and political influence, okay, but an economic competitor of the United States, never, ever, 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 not now, not ever. If there's a sanctions war, an economic war, I'm quoting our president, between the United States and NATO against Russia, well, I've done the work. The GDP of the United States and NATO is $32 trillion fighting Russia, which is one and a half, okay? You, this, this is a war between the United States and the eastern half of the Cayman Islands. It's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> it it well, is a joke. Well, Richard, like you bring up the GDPs, though, and then like uh, as it relates to um, what's going on between NATO and Russia, like there's the very much the real war, like the killing fields that are going on in Ukraine right now. But right. there, yeah, as you mentioned, there's an economic war happening as well. And if you look at like, as you said, like the tail of the tape between the GDP of U.S. and NATO countries and Russia, you're like, OK, well, obviously, like it's clear how this war is going to end up in an economic battle between these two but why has that not been the case like sanctions have not really slowed down the russian economy or that's, or that's hindered right. their war effort in any way i'm gonna answer your question here we go what is the gdp of the people's republic of china right now answer about between 16 and 17 trillion dollars for the last 30 years the People's Republic of China GDP has grown an average of 6 to 9%. And that of the United States has grown an average of 2 to 2.5%. There is no contest. The world economy is now composed of the United States at one end, the People's Republic of China at the other. That's the major issue. Europe is caught between not knowing which way to go, and we're in for some bad surprises in the next few years about that. And we can come back to that if you want. But the reason you can't defeat Russia is because you have pushed 
Russia together with China, and they've now added India, game over. You lost. You can't beat that. Let me remind you, half the world's people live in that other thing led by China. China and India are the two. Uh, I think India is actually now a bit larger than China. But there we got, I think, together, I don't know, 30 or 40 percent right there. But if you add uh, Brazil, South Africa, it becomes unwieldy. But more important, they now have high tech. The Chinese have shown themselves able to replicate everything the United States does and go ahead in a number of airways. That was part of the Huawei uh, problem, that they actually have stuff we haven't figured out how to do yet. And that and they show the capability of doing that. That's an incredible achievement for a country that was among the poorest 40 years ago. I mean, the whole world is mostly in poor countries whose number one priority is to become rich. China is the model. Let me remind you, economics is a discipline that says our founder was a man named Adam Smith in Britain in the 18th century. Adam Smith is famous for writing the following book, The Wealth of Nations. What was his point? England was richer and had become rich in a way other countries hadn't. And Adam Smith said, I want to figure out why. Long story short, his answer was, England made the transition out of feudalism to capitalism first, and therein lies the secret of why the wealth of nations is greatest there. So to the rest of the world, you want to get wealthy like England, and they all did. This is what you got to do. You got to be more like us, which they all did. Right now, that role is being played by the People's Republic of China, and the whole world sees it and knows it, except for one country that is mired in a level of mysterious bullshit, so it can't face this, it can't think about it, it can't strategize rationally. It's left to do what? Poke at China. Put your, your, your seventh fleet in the South China Sea. Make lots of noise about a little island called Taiwan as if you had any standing there. What are you doing? What 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 is this childish symbolism rather than... I won't, I won't embarrass Americans by saying, how many of you understood that stuff about the GDP? Because you and I both know the answer. Everybody who's in a position of authority should have that statistic on the tip of their fingers because it says so much and it's an important starting point. But they don't. You're left to have, you know, Chapo Trap House and a, a, an obscure economist like me to make these kinds of points. I'm I shouldn't say it that way. I, I'm, I'm getting more attention than I ever got in my life. I appreciate it. And I have opportunities to speak, and I appreciate that. I don't know how long it'll last, but I appreciate it for the time being. But there's a level of denial going on here. My wife's a psychotherapist. Denial is a big issue for psychologists and therapists like her. But I've had to learn it's a very good way for me to begin to identify that mystery I keep telling you about, which is why we are mired. The United, let me put it the last way this way. For the first time in my life, the United, and for the first time in a century, I'm not that old, but for the first time in my life, the United States has a serious 
economic competitor. We have to get used to That's a new world in a hundred different ways, economically, politically, culturally, you name it. It's a new world. And we are not winning that struggle. I don't know if we're losing it, but we are not winning it. We are not. We have had four wars. We've had four wars. Uh, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. Pick your pick your next one. It doesn't matter. The United States has lost them all. That's a bad sign for an empire. Very bad sign. Really bad. We've had huge numbers of American troops doing this. We have an enormous covert operation. We have 70 bases. By comparison, the country beating us economically was involved in none of those wars. No Chinese soldiers are off the of off the Chinese uh, territory. They weren't involved. They're not involved in Iraq, uh, in Ukraine either. Wow. Uh, you got to deal with it. You can't pretend these differences aren't there or don't matter. And yet you will look long and hard in the major media about all these issues to get this perspective even enunciated. I have a colleague at the University of Chicago named John Mearsheimer. I don't know if you come across mm-hmm. him. Yeah. Oh, definitely. The best, you know, global power conflict analyst we have in the country. Everybody knows that. He's got a take on Ukraine, blow you out of the water. Really fine. The best kind of academic work. And he and I don't agree on most things. But he he, he says it. He doesn't run away. And they can't handle him. They, they don't know what to do with him. You're watching it also with Seymour Hirsch and the story about the Nord Stream and the the blowing up of the pipeline. What is this? Every European, that article been translated in, I've read, I first read it in German, then I read it in French. I couldn't get the American. Well, I mean, it should be telling that like the the EU, the EU member states are, and like or NATO member states most affected by this. Uh all that information out there, are they calling for some sort of investigation? Is Sweden even going to make the results of their uh, cleanup of the pipeline available to other NATO countries? No, they're not. What, why does that tell you? What does that tell well, you? Well, Does, it, does what, it tell you that some Ukrainian separatist group blew it up? No, it doesn't. No, oh, no, no. That, yeah, that, <laughs> talk about a reach. That, that last one. You're right. I mean, that is off the chart. But no, no, it's very important. Europe, here's the truth which is different from what the leadership said. The leaders in Europe have made a decision, at least for the time being, they're going with the United States. Very significant. I don't mean to to say that it isn't. But whether it's uh, Schultz in Germany or Macron in France, uh, the only real dissent is uh, Orban in Hungary and the new woman uh, in Italy, who's the leader in the Italian and they're they're coming from the right. This is different. Um, they've made a decision to go with the United States. You should understand that. I don't dispute that's correct. I, I read their papers. I can see that. But what you may not know is there are very powerful interests in all of those countries that are very unhappy with what's going on. And they're going to be pushing against that leadership. When you hear Schultz or the woman, the foreign minister, Anna uh, Baerbock, when you hear those people talk, they're not talking to you and I. They're talking to their own opposition because that's their problem. Germany is governed by a coalition that could disappear tomorrow. 
or be there next year. That's being for Macron is the Macron is as popular. I mean, I, Macron is a joke. He's as popular as like uh, pancreatic cancer is right now exactly. in, in France. Yeah, the whole. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you've dealt with this. There's a general strike in France this week. I just saw that some French labor unions are cutting off electricity to Amazon facilities and they're putting them on, quote, I think, an energy diet because they they said that's our money and we want it back. That's right. They they blockaded all of the refineries. So within a few days, no gas station will have any gas because they will have, you know, emptied the tank that they have and they're not going to get a replacement. All eight national federations of unions in France have agreed. They don't agree on anything. They've agreed to do this general strike. And remember, before the pandemic, they had the, the, the Yellow Vest movement, which was another mass mobilization. The polls in France, Gallup and the other polls, 60 to 65 percent of the French people polled support the strike. You're done. Mr. Macron didn't have much chance before. He has less now. And I want to remind you what the issue is. In France, you can retire at age 62 with a full pension. He wants to raise it to 64. Macron wants to raise it to 64. That's the issue. Americans don't say boo, and it's now effectively 66 here. So, boo, wow, what a difference. My family, which is French, when you graduate high school and go into the labor force in France, or you graduate college, your employer, from the die you start, must give you five weeks paid vacation every year. That's the law. It's been the law for decades. When I explain that to my students or the lectures I give, the audience here in the United States, they sit and look at me. They don't say a word. But they look at me the way a little puppy does when the puppy has done something on the rug it shouldn't have and (laughs) and is picking up the vibes that you're not happy about it. All right. I guess like so like based on your previous comments, like or what we're talking about, if you think about America finally facing a serious economic competitor or the like the in China and the overall the BRICS nations as, as they're yeah. referred to. But like, I mean, it's clear from your comments that like the era of the uni, unipolar world is over, like the era like that that's coming to that's very the writing is on the wall in terms of America as the manager of a global economic system. Um but then we could get into like I want to ask like you know back to a theme in this conversation. What would a rational, a rationally run country like? How would it respond to the like economic competition from a nation like China? And then like in in order to rationally um, address these concerns of anything that we're talking about here, and and the and the example of France uh, that we just talked about uh, is front in my mind. Is labor struggle like the only grounds on which the economic rule of the upper classes can be fought? And like, is it, isn't all of this necessary to have the kind of society that could rationally deal with what a major economic competitor from well, economic competition from China will look like in the coming century or so? Well, while I am very happy that you bring up the whole labor capital struggle, because that's another absent item on the discourse of this country that shouldn't be absent because it's going to play a major role. It already is. I would not want to say that's the only or the most important. I wouldn't say that. There's too many levels here that have to be dealt with. So let me offer a different way to think about 
how rational an alternative we could construct. I'm going to use American history. The War of uh, the War of Independence, 1776, and all of that was a war in which the colonial power, Britain, George the Third, King is telling Americans what to do, organizing and manipulating the economy, using taxes and so forth, uh, to ad- advantage the British Empire, which is at that point at its height, or nearly so. Uh, and the American colonists, mostly British, or British by origin, um, fight back. And to the surprise of everybody, David beats Goliath. It happens, and it happened then. And we're very proud as a nation that we were able to pull that off. Britain was pissed off. They didn't understand how this could happen either. It wasn't supposed to. A few years later, in 1812, they tried again, and they were the British, and they were beaten again. At that point, they realized, and I hope I'm not being overly generous here, but I think they realized they couldn't do it. They could not, with military force, despite having the greatest navy in the world, despite being a much larger country than uh, the United States, the new country, um, and despite all that they knew, having been the colonial power. Remember, they knew where the harbors were. They, They know everything. They couldn't do it. And they made a decision which they worried about. It wasn't like they decided it, then it was done. I'm not suggesting that. But they basically made a decision, we can't beat them. So what we're going to have to do is work something out. It has to allow the British economy to flourish, and but it has to allow them also. Otherwise, we're going to be having a war every three years, five years, and 10 years doesn't matter, and they're getting worse and worse. And they did it. You know, I'm condensing a lot of complicated history, but they did it. And for the next hundred years, the the colony changed places with the colonizer. Britain, I'm sure you understand, for the last century, the one ending now, has been our colony. It's role reversal almost to the detail, not in the in the imagination. The British are masters at denial. They still think that they matter. It's amazing, <laughs> you know. But they've been the colony of the United States. They worked it out. Britain went on to be a a, a fairly successful economic entity in the world. It couldn't hold on to its empire. It had to give that up. And the United States not only didn't help them, the United States undercut them and replaced them. But they held on. That's the model. The United States has to understand it's over. And I don't, and, mean, I don't mean to be dr- dramatic. The drama ain't me. The drama is in the situation. I just, because of my particular role in this, in this country at this time, you know, I'm the messenger. You can shoot me. It ain't going to make the message go away. It's there. It's coming. Um, the Chinese know it. Haven't you noticed? We keep poking them. They don't poke back. They sit there. They sit there. They kind of take it. 
they wait a few weeks. They do something half halfway, probably. To, send a balloon over here. <laughs> yeah, send, sending a balloon wasn't interesting. Shooting yeah. it down yeah, yeah, with yeah. cowboy enthusiasm, that was nuts. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, anyway, I do think that the, this is the, the task for the United States is to have new leadership, not these old people raised in this in the Cold War, used to that way of thinking. You remember the new the new senator from Alabama, Tommy Tuberville, gave a famous speech right after he was elected. It was a stump speech. He had been giving it all along. And he comes to a point in his speech where he talks about his father and mother and how important, you know, in the way that Southern politicians seem to need to do. And he gets to the point about his father. He loved his father. And he was so proud of his father. Here it comes. It's almost a quote of his father's service in the American armed forces fighting communism in World War II. <laughs> I got it. I, I forgot no, about that. Better, That's better than this is the applause in the audience. No one said or understood anything about that. And Tommy is out there speaking, and the racism, by the way, that comes out of that man's mouth is truly stunning. Truly stunning. He gave a speech the other day against reparations. They are coming for your money. Speaking to an audience 100% white, the criminals now want your money. Criminals, advocates of reparation, you can see the connection. I mean, whoa, whoa. That's well, part I of denial. That yeah, yeah, that, that's what I mean. Is that like, like you, you talked about denial and like how many features of our current um, political crises or uh, seemingly fractured and and pathological behavior that we see in, and 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 uh, you know uh, behavior and personalities that we see in this country are in effect like a knock a knock on effect or like further down the stream from our inability to cope with the idea that we're no longer number one and we're not going to be in this in this coming century. Yeah, you know. MAGA is exactly, if I were a playwright, I'm not, I don't have this skill, but if I were a playwright and I wanted to make that point that you just said nicely, I would invent red hats with MAGA printed on them because it would summarize, we're going to bring it all back. We're going to make it great again. We're going to, look, I don't know if you noticed but I actually watched television for 10 minutes. It's the most I could bear. And I watched the funeral of Queen Elizabeth through the streets of London, the golden jewel coach and the horses. And the, look at this theater, the theater of the vanished empire and the vanished dead queen who's going to take into the grave the little bit that's left, the country that bamboozled itself into imagining that its problems were Europe's fault, and if only they cut off Europe in Brexit, wow, would they do well. This is self-destruction on a grand scale. It's a lesson to the United States, but a one that the United States can't learn because it is so busy hiding 
from everything. Costco's management just announced the opening of a multi-million dollar mega store, and they're excited about their future, and they're sitting there shaking hands with the Chinese officials that they're working with. Meanwhile, all this junk is floating around the bullshit. But, you know, I'm, I'm humbled by this. People get into wars through bullshit. It's happened before. It can happen again. I mock it by calling it bullshit. But there are moments when I am very scared. I am very scared. Well, Professor Wolf, I think that's a uh, <laughs> on that note of, uh, of a slight slight apprehension of the future and uh, where this is all going. I think we should uh, wrap it up and leave that there for today. But uh, Professor Wolf, if people would like uh, some more of your commentary on uh, current events uh, or, or or more of your economic analysis, uh, where should they go? I would offer two places, and thank you for the opportunity to mention them. Number one, I do a weekly radio and television show called Economic Update. You can find it. It's all over the United States, both on radio and on television, different days and times, depending on where in the country uh, you are. But if you look it up, Economic Update, my name, you can find it. And the other is to go to our website. Uh, Economic Update is on half a dozen television uh, networks, the radio, about 100 stations broadcast the radio show, and it's all on YouTube. But I would also urge you to go to our website, which is democracy at work, one word, democracy at work dot info, I-N-F-O. If you do that, you will see all of our activity. We publish books. We do an immense amount of video. And it all, all of that work is sort of summarized in the kinds of conversation we just had. Links to both uh, Democracy at Work and Economic Update will be in the show description of this episode of the show. Once again, Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much for your time. That does it for us today on Chapo Trap House. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, and thank you.